focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. Welcome to Resist Bot Pod. All right, one o'clock and all is well. Hello, everyone. It is ResistBot Live, episode two. Uh, really glad to have everybody back. So a couple things it occurs to us. We should probably be telling you at the front every week. Uh, this is a live show going out 1 p.m. on Sunday, Eastern Time. Uh, those of you that are listening to the podcast, we love that you're doing that, but please feel free to join us. You can comment in, in real time and, and have us uh, address your issues and concerns right there on Sunday afternoons, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. So um, let's jump in. Today is October 3rd. It's 2021, as you're likely to already know. And I would like to start today's show with a quick shout out to the folks in our Reddit community. So if you're a Redditor, make sure you join our, our tiny little group that is growing with every episode. It's going to be reddit.com slash r slash resist bot. Uh, would love to hear from you there. Just, uh, you know, different commentary. If you have thoughts about the show, you know, you want to post your favorite clips. We would love to see some activity in there. So this week, we're going to be talking more about uh, a topic that we began last week, which is what's happening with uh, supplemental income, disability programs. There's a complexity here we need to talk about. We've got a special guest uh, named Melissa Thompson that's going to be joining us later. Um, one of the things that I think you should keep in mind as we go is compare what you think a disability program from the government looks like versus the reality that we discuss as we go through not just Velissa's own experiences, but the people in the community that she supports. Uh, she's a, a social worker. She started off in micro social work. She moved on to policy oriented macro social work. Um, very excited to have Velissa on and uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Velissa Thompson. Uh, we'll throw it up on the screen in a little bit, but it's V-I-L-I-S-S-A. T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. And uh, and she's a good follow, too. Uh, her website is Ramp Your Voice. Before we uh, we get to Melissa, though, let's bring in uh, my good friend for, I don't know what, almost 20 years now, Jason Patorti. Uh, Producer Anna, can I have Jason come to the stage? Click the button. Hey, wait a minute. That's Jason. And we're wearing the same color. And that's weird. How are you, Jason? I'm great, Scott. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> we we should have changed this or coordinated this. I don't know. Like I'm wearing, I think what can best be described as like the Best Buy polo, and you seem to have a soccer jersey of some variety. So I don't know. It's not exactly the same thing. Yeah, I came directly from soccer to to sit in the chair here today. Yeah, I'm not as active as you are. Go ahead and keep rubbing that in. Uh, all right. So officially around here, what do we call you? The executive director of the ResistBot Action Fund. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's that's what I have to put on the forms. Uh, yeah, it's a big, that, I, that's a mouthful. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I pretty much do a little bit of everything. Yeah, I uh, I'm impressed by sort of what, ResistBot's been able to accomplish. I don't know that everybody necessarily knows that background story, though. So I'm wondering if you can't just tell us a little bit about the origin story, 
this is not a new effort. What are we, four years in, five years in now? Yeah. So um, tell us, like, where were you? You know, you're thinking about, I don't know, the political landscape. You're thinking about civic engagement. What was it that was the trigger event got you started on ResistBot? Sure. Um, uh, well, to, to jump in, I mean, I had been in this space for about 10 years. So um, it sort of didn't happen entirely in a vacuum. Uh, I'd worked on private civic, uh, prior civic tech projects. Um, one of those was Votizen. Um, it was started around uh, 2010. It was uh, venture funded and um, learned a lot of lessons doing that. That ended up getting rolled into another company called Brigade, which I left in, uh, in 2015. And kind of once Votizen went away, which um, it was a really interesting service, the original um, iteration of that was taking tweets that people would, would tag at 2Gov, at Votizen. We take tweets print them out and actually hand deliver them into, into the various congressional offices in DC. It was one of the first examples uh, I was aware of, of kind of bridging the online to offline advocacy gap. Um, so with all that experience um, in civic technology, um, of course, uh, you know, 2016 election rolled around into 2017. Um, right after the election, we saw, um, you know, if you remember, there was a big groundswell of activism all over the country. Um, you had women's marches, you had people sitting in airports, um, Indivisible uh, started to exist, um, Swing Left, a number of organizations kind of sprouted up um, sort of in response to uh, to the election result with Trump Trump uh, kind of becoming the president-elect. And, um, you know, people were nervous about their rights and they were, they were marching, they were calling Congress in huge numbers. Um, and that's really where, um, you know, me, um, Eric Reese, a co-creator, co uh, co-founder, um, a lot of us saw uh, basically our, we were having a pro this problem ourselves of not being able to reach uh, congressional offices. Those offices are um, staffed by a handful of people with maybe only 15, 16, 17 phone lines. Um, California alone is over 40 million people. So you can imagine this is a, this is a classic system that just does not scale. So all the, all the advocacy groups are telling their members, like, flood the phones, flood the phones, flood the phones, but it just wasn't working. There's no way to get through. Um, so the idea was to uh, take a Twilio API, which had just been created. It wasn't even publicly released yet. Um, it was a Twilio fax API um, and connect that with SMS. So we built a way for people to uh, just pick up their phone, text number 5049, and they could type a few words out, and that would be printed out uh, via fax uh, into the congressional offices. So very similar, actually, to what we did 10 years before, um, but this time it was a little bit more scalable in that uh, we didn't have to have uh, people running around the halls of Congress hand-delivering stuff. We had it printing right out in their fax machines. Um, so I'll just, I'll just pause there. Like, over time, but I like, obviously. Yeah, but I, I was going to jump in anyway because, you know, one of the things I think – um, you identified there was sort of like the, the timing is always hard. Whenever you, you start something new, a new tool, the customer has to tell you they're ready. And, and you kind of were able to do that because as you said, there were already these grassroots organizations and efforts that were forming around this idea of getting more involved. There were marches, there were people that were basically like shoving, um, all of these different attempts at communication into really tight bottlenecks and something had to be done. And luckily you already had um, developments 
uh, and, and technology concepts around this, what worked and what didn't. Um, we're lucky. I'm glad that you're on the show today. I want to make sure we circle back in a bit. I want to talk to you a little bit about how organizers would use ResistBot. Um, but do me a favor, stick around. Uh, I'd like you to participate in the panel uh, as we talk about the, the disability topic today. And uh, I'd like to also then bring in, let's get uh, Susan Stutz and uh, Melanie Dion up here. And I'm so glad to have somebody that pushes the buttons for me. I'm not going to lie to you. That's like a really big luxury. Um, Melanie, Susan, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys? Good morning. Good morning. Well, afternoon for you guys, right? Hey. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're coming from uh, <laughs> from the other side of the AMPM border. The, the desert where God just starts blinking. <laughs> I'm not even digging into that. I know I want to, and I know I won't. Um, yeah, I like to poke you with that. It's, yeah, it's you fun. know, you know those ones. I will run away with and start start commenting on. Um, Absolutely. We learned a lot last week. Um, I feel like as a group, we learned a lot. You know, we started off with the demolished disabled poverty uh, petition, and I think this week I want to put more into that discussion. Um, I would like to have a little bit more conversation about what is actually the experience of somebody that is trying to use these programs. Um, Susan, I know you did research here. Like I know you have good sort of factoids and things that you pulled up, uh, because you know, you write a lot of the things that, uh, that appear on the website and those kinds of things. Uh, what do you wish we would cover, or at least what do you wish we knew more about just as like the person on the street walking down, you know, not really knowing anything about this? Well, I think one of the things that was really impactful for me when I was doing this research is the number of people who rely on benefits um, from social security. And that is a huge number. It's 65 million people get some form of benefit from Social Security Administration. And I think it's important that we know those numbers. Eight million of those people get Social Security income, supplemental income. That's a huge number. So when we're talking about these problems and, and the level of poverty that at least 8 million people who are receiving governmental benefits live in, I think we have to keep that in mind. Um, and just and know that this is a huge, huge issue. Everybody on this show, everybody, everybody has a connection to someone who's getting a Social Security benefit. So there, you know, there's not very many degrees of separation between us and the recipients. Well, Melanie found that out because Melanie, you were you were working with the folks that were actually commenting live. Uh, you know, you were dealing with the reactions that were coming from Facebook and from Twitter and all the different places that we stream. Um, does that sort of match what people were saying in the in the chat? Yes. Um, one of the things, uh, one of our listeners, I don't want to give her the wrong name, but she mentioned how her sister had um, received inheritance and how that just screwed her over, for lack yeah. of a, you know, just to put it briefly, and how you know, the, the the system is antiquated. The the overwhelming response was an agreement with how antiquated the system is and how it's basically 
not truly meant to be of a benefit to people with disabilities. So it's, it's at the very least, our, li- our listeners are tapped in and just want to make sure that their voices are heard on, on, on this issue. I agree with Susan's comment. And I think I, I like how concise it is too. It's basically just everyone is within the orbit of someone who is mm-hmm. going through this bureaucracy and complexity. And I think that's why we needed to do this episode where I mean, no disrespect to anyone that listens and doesn't really understand this because I don't think many of us actually know how it works, but I feel also it's our responsibility to learn. Uh, I, I feel like if you're probably listening to us, you're, you're in a continuous improvement mindset where you sort of know, like it's your job to sort of be aware of what policies are being proposed and how they would affect the people that they're supposed to help. And, um, you know, I think the last part, and Jason, I'd, I'd like to tag you on this. Um, there's also the part about how does it get done, right? Um, you know, in the original petition, you know, the hope was that it would get uh, included in the Build Back Better reconciliation. The the, the bills that are coming in here um, as part of like the daily front page news. I understand that this isn't an area of expertise for you necessarily in terms of health policy and and disability policy, but I know you've been following some of the conversation around these bills. Um, What are your impressions here? Like, like it seems, it it seems like there's a lot of talk about the negotiation of this package. Um, But this isn't the only way to get these improvements passed, is it? Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty confusing. Um, Again, Matt Cortland's the be the best person to talk to about this, as he's uh, he's he's in D.C. He's been working closely with activists on Capitol Hill. Um, but I mean, the original demand was to just just pass this, just pass a clean bill, um, and there was you know resistance to that from you know different people. And then it turned into okay, well, it can't pass by itself, so let's get it into the reconciliation bill, and let's try and like you know tack it in as a rider to something else. Um, and it's all, it's all pretty complicated and and gets very technical. Um, mostly it's just, it's just sad. Um, and that is the, that is kind of what we see with a lot of activism efforts. Um, you know, people take a look at it. It's like, okay, let's, let's pass this bill. Let's, let's try and ask for this one particular thing. And then it kind of churns around as people trying to try to figure out the machinery of Washington, how it works. And, you know, what's unfortunate is just it's not set up in a way where the average person can sort of understand and participate, which is, you know, unfortunately why lobbyists can jump in and they can kind of suck so much of the oxygen out of that place because they know exactly how all this works. Um, they know kind of how, how the sausage gets made, as they said in Hamilton, and, you know, they figure out how to, how to get their stuff in, into the bills. Um, and it would be nice if this could, if this very simple issue could just be addressed in a single piece of legislation. And it's just sad that there's not enough, you know, not enough support, not enough pressure to get it done. But there is for, you know, for example, passing, you know, huge amount, huge defense budget budgets and paying for boondoggle weapons programs because there's people speaking for those industries in Capitol Hill and there isn't anyone uh, or at least, you know, the moneyed interest speaking for, uh, you know, the d- disabled disability community. It's, it's, it's really, uh, it's really unfortunate. That's, that's kind of how our government works these days. Well, let's, and, let's do what we can. Sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, I wanted to interject and just point out that um, last week, I think we were at, we were at 73,037 signers 
Now we're at 73,095. So we're uh, 1,905 signers short. So if you're watching, it's great that you're hanging out with us, but please text SSI now to 50409 to help meet, help us meet that goal of 75,000. Because yeah, I know we get can your do friends it. I, to do it. Absolutely. I know we've got 1,905 people who believe that this petition needs to move to the next level. I'm sure yeah. of it. I, I'm glad you said it that way. We we really do need people to be thinking about this. And let's spend the rest of this show, though, making sure that those folks are educated about sort of like what the actual current situation is. Yeah. Uh, let's bring Valissa on. Valissa, uh, how are you? I'm doing good. Well. I I gotta say you have this tranquil, you know, atmosphere around you, and I mm-hmm. I'm not a hundred percent sure how you get that, but I want to get you know whatever you're sipping on because I would throw things if this was my day. I look at what uh, details you sent ahead in terms of just like how aggravating it can be going through these. Um, Let's start, though, at the beginning. Can you introduce yourself just a little bit, make sure everybody knows who you are and, and you know, what your perspective is? Yes. I'm Alyssa Thompson. I'm a social worker, activist, writer, speaker based in South Carolina. And my connection to this is the fact that I am a disabled person. I have a congenital disability called osteogenesis imperfecta, which is a fancy way of saying brittle bones. It's something that I've been born with my entire life. And due to that, I was on social security from childhood until I was 30 years old when I got my first job. So I have experienced firsthand what it's like to be a beneficiary of SSI from childhood and teen years to adulthood and making that transition and seeing some of the cracks within the program that many disabled people like myself have endured and discussed and are advocating for to improve the program overall. So let's start with my biggest question, which is, um, do you ever get the feeling like the person or people that wrote this series of tasks didn't have to go through it? And if so, like, tell me, tell me what the burdens are that we're talking about here. Well, when we think about, in my opinion, many of our programs, there is a detachment of the real life and the stereotypical understanding. And one of the major misconceptions about many of our governmental programs, not just SSI, but with SNAP, food stamps, with HUD, is that people think that we're living high off the hog in a way, meaning that people are intentionally frauding the system to get on the roles of these programs. And that's not the case at all. The actual percentage of those who are actually frauding the government to get on these programs is very small to the point to where it's laughable that this is one of the main um, myths about these programs, particularly when it comes to SSI. So we understand that many people who are are on the rolls for SSI need this lifeline. And that's why I consider many of our programs from the government, whether it's Social Security, Medicaid, SNAP, HUD, and so forth, there are lifelines for people. And when we fail to understand that, 
And that's when we fail to really see the importance of ensuring that everybody is able to thrive and not just barely scrape by as many of us are doing on the rolls. I know that when I was on social security, I think around the last year, I think I was getting $733 a month. That is that, you know, even in South Carolina, that does not cover rent. There's not enough to have for groceries and it's definitely not enough to have for an emergency. So we see that many of us are deep within poverty when it comes to being on social security. And, you know, as you all said in the introduction, there has been a lack of initiative to fully get these programs up to date to deal with the inflation that has occurred over the decades to even improving some of the restrictions of the program so that they're not restrictive to us. So living on social security, you know, in some ways it's waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, whether it's waiting for your annual review to come, you know, however you have it, however, you know, many times you have to have it as the annual or otherwise to, to ensure that you're still disabled, quote unquote, enough to be on the rolls, to having to keep up with the mounds of paperwork, to even having to deal with when they mess up on their end. They meaning those at the social security branch that you're connected to, and you're trying to scramble to ensure that whatever wrongs that they've done doesn't impact you and trying to figure out how to do that. So it's very much a stressful, complicated system that is intentionally stressful and complicated because we do not value the lives of disabled people in this country. So start me off with what does it take to qualify and get the paperwork done for the federal programs? Just, I understand every case is a little bit different, right? right? But give me a sense of sort of like what extra work I would have to do. And let's, for the moment, let's say that I'm you, right? I have brittle bones. Um, This is not a new thing for me, but I, I probably have some things that add complexity to, to these things. It's not the same as just, you know, get in the car, drive down, walk out, right? Tell me, tell me about what it takes to get on the federal rolls. Well, I know that from my experience, um, my grandmother and my aunt were the ones to get me on the rolls. So I am certain they had to provide proof of my disability, which means that have to, the easiest way to do that is have a medical diagnosis, which means that you can get a, you know, documentation from your medical provider. So I'm certain that's what they had to do in my case. And then you go through the process of getting on the rolls. But what I'm more in tune with is what it, what it takes to stay on the rolls. So for me, particularly as an adult who was on SSI, we had these, what I call the medical reviews that I mentioned, which basically is to declare that you are still disabled and that your disability qualifies on the program and that if you need a doctor's note from your doctor, that you're still disabled enough to continue receiving SSI, which for most people is connected to the healthcare, which for me was Medicaid. So those two things were connected in my case. So I had to prove that I'm disabled. And, you know, as I said in my intro, that this is something I'm born with. It's not going to go away ever. But under this system, I have to continuously prove that I am deserving of being on this program. So in the ways, you know, it's just a 
a testing of how disabled are you? Are you disabled enough? And even then, you know, if you have some health improvements along the way, not necessarily meaning that your disability goes away, but, you know, it may, you know, progress whether, you know, in some way, shape or form, that may, you know, influence whether or not you consider disabled enough. So can you tell me about how much time that takes? Like get, getting on, staying on the paperwork, like what kind of time investment are we looking at? So whenever I would have to do the annual check-in, they would send a letter to my home saying that we want to do a call for you when it comes to seeing kind of where you're at. So that would mean we would schedule a call. Sometimes you have to go to the security branch. But for me, I always did a call and I would go through um, what I've been enduring for the last year. If I was working, if I've been hospitalized, if I have any needs that were more significant than the last time I had this review. And I never had to, for me personally, go and get medical proof. It was always just checking in to see where my status is and more so when it came to employment, um, if I was working or not. And I know that's another thing that can really impact your ability to be on Social Security if you receive any type of earnings. So they just really, in some way, check it in. They would check your bank account to see if you're meeting that resource limit, staying under $2,000 if you're a single person like myself. Just make sure that you really don't have any other assets or income outside of whatever the amount of security that you're receiving from them. And then they take the assessment and go from there. So then the next question becomes with that, with that, uh, total acquisition, total holdings, right? There's a, there's this thing where even if you find a place, let's say you get really lucky and you say you find a place that's $200 a month to rent and your groceries are $200, you can somehow get underneath these dollar figures, right? You're able to maybe share costs with family or something like that. Saving doesn't really help because it sounds like if you save $2,000, you're done. You're, you're no longer yeah, If you save benefits. over $2,000, yes, that would be penalized for that. Yes. I don't think anyone knows that. And, and I think if you do know that it's probably because it's, it's a first person or, or, you know, secondhand thing of someone that, who's in your immediate orbit. And these are the concepts that I really wanted to sort of bring into this, this discussion. Um, I have a our, comment. Yeah. I Sorry. Was just about to, I was literally just about to say, let's go to our reactions. Melanie, what's going Sorry. on? Sorry, I'm jumping the gun. Um, so we have Amy who uh, she offered the suggestion because we last week we had um, uh, a, a, a reaction. One of our commenters mentioned that their sister had an issue because she received an inheritance. And Amy said that uh, you could leave the inheritance in the special needs trust. But how are you familiar with that in your in, in your actual social work um, capacity? And does would something like that really be of aid to the recipient? I think that I'm not the most versed on the social need trust. I am familiar with the ABLE Act, which allows for disabled people to save a certain amount each year. But you have to qualify for that particular program that has came about over the last few years. And you have to meet a certain age limit for it at this time. And there's work to um, eliminate the age requirements because, you know, we can become disabled throughout the lifespan, not just from zero to 18 
or up mm-hmm. to, I think the last time I saw the limit was at 46. So I'm familiar with that a little bit more than the special need trusts. But the issue with these programs is that if you are of color, if you are poor, if you don't have the access or you're not told by a caseworker or someone at social security office, that you're not going to know how to ensure that you or the disabled person that you are, um, maybe the representative payee for, can save money in a safe way and not be penalized. I know that's not something that my family was aware of at all. So I think that there's, there's a privilege there in knowing about this information and then be able to save. Because again, $733 a month, which was what I getting, which was what I was getting, it's not it's not hardly anything to be able to put in any type of trust. Um, and when Scott, I'm sorry, when Scott was talking, he mentioned, you know, getting help from families and friends and whatnot. But as I understand it, that can be detrimental to your ability to get benefits as well. Am I right? Yes. Any type of income that you get outside of your social security, you have to report it to social security office. And they have this whole scale, which is I'm not the most you know, technical to really go into, to determine how those additional funds may, may or may not count against you. So, so it's really me- a big restriction on not just being able to save reaching that $2,000 limit, but also to be able to get additional support outside, mm-hmm. you know, from the families or so forth that's not coming from the government itself. Yeah. From what I understand, you have really no ability to save for a rainy day, save for, you know, unexpected emergencies, things like that. I mean, if you can only have $2,000, you know, car repair, you know, right. you have anything significant go wrong with your car and there goes your $2,000 and you couldn't save any more than that. So, I mean, you're really, it really is the epitome of between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Yeah. There is, you know, you really do pray that there's no major emergency mm-hmm. that you endure because you're kind of, you know, out there without yeah. much support. And that's the thing. A lot of these limits that we see with the program have not been updated in decades, which means they have not kept up with the times, including the fact that disabled people can and do work. We have more opportunities to do that mm-hmm. and have failed to really just see us outside of um, just people who are on these systems. You know, the government does not, with these programs, see us as people. You know, they see us as, you know, these burdens on on the system. And I think that really translates as to why there's so many barriers and burdens of sorts when being on these programs that has nothing to do with our lives as disabled people or anything of that capacity. It has everything to do with the misconceptions and the ableism surrounding disabled people. So, Valissa, I, I want to ask you a quick question uh, just about... Um, the availability of resources. You have a huge following. Tens of thousands of people are already following you. And uh, if you're just joining us on the live stream, we're talking to Valissa Thompson. She is a social worker and activist uh, in the disability community. Uh, you can follow her at Valissa Thompson, V-I-L-I-S-S-A-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N on Twitter. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impact of geography and race on the the access to these services and and people that you need yes you know as i said earlier is that for many of us who may be from working class sorry 
I'm outside. Are you hosting <laughs> drag races on your front lawn again? <laughs> you would think you so with the way that they're on the street here. So it's <laughs> used to noise. Don't worry about um, anything. We're all good. You know, being from the South here in South Carolina, you know, the way that these programs are utilized is just a, you know, it just, it really it gives a good scope of where you live, depends on how much access that you have that, that goes within the program and outside of that. Um, I know that, you know, kind of in our talks to prepare for the show is that the more homogeneous the population is, the more access to better support and services. A good example of that is the states who either expanded or failed not to, but it came to Medicaid under the ACA Affordable Care Act. We saw that many southern states like my, like mine did not expand, whereas states up north, out west, or states where the demographic is more white, they did expand. And that's the same when it comes to certain benefits programs. You know, I know folks who live in other parts of the country, they have more access to programs within vocational rehabilitation than I did here. And that can very much vary by location and also by race. I know that there are black single folks like myself who had, you know, lackluster experiences with social security, with work rehab and other governmental programs, whereas some of the white folks that I know with disabilities had a better experience. So you cannot really talk about these programs without having an intersectional understanding of the oppressions dealing with race and disability. Because even if you may have, you know, the most knowledge in the world about these programs, and, you know, the ways in which you can fully engage with them. If you're encountering people within these systems that really don't want to help you get access to them because of your race and because of where you live, then that is always going to be a barrier. So, Mel, um, I'd like to check back in with the comments. Do we have questions or reactions that uh, we can throw Velissa's way? I, I really like the idea of bring, being able to bring those questions directly to her. We do. Um, well, so we had um, Paula earlier who who pointed out, um, and hi, Paula, because um, she was with us last week as well, how it's important to remember that we're talking about people. These are real life people that it affects. And leading into that, Katie asked why it was $2,000 when $2,000 isn't even a month of her rent. But I think that really ties into what Melissa says in that People, you know, with disabilities are really viewed more like a burden than actual people. And so they set this $2,000 threshold ages ago. Yeah. And, and, and just, right. And just kind of left it there. Right. And I don't, I don't think that the government would really be crazy about someone with a disability living in a $2,000 apartment. I think the, the, the uh, the supposition is that you should be living in something less than mm-hmm. if you if you have a disability and you can break in um, and and give your thoughts on that, Melissa, as well. But it just yeah. doesn't. No, it, you're right. It, yeah, it it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's um. It almost seems like it's meant to keep you. We talked about this to keep you othered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's like. They don't want to see disabled people living well. You know, they want to live with the misconceptions that we're needy, you know, that we're helpless, that we're incredibly vulnerable, 
And those are not the realities of this community. And it has not kept up with the actions that this community has done to increase access and inclusion in our society. You know, when many of these rules were regulated, you know, disabled people were fighting for the rights to, to have what we now have and are continuing to push forward for. You know, they were not thinking about us being in schools, you know, obtaining degrees, you know, being in the, a part of the working class. They weren't thinking of those things when they came up with a lot of these programs. They don't really think of folks who need these programs, whether it's Social Security, yeah. um, SNAP, or so forth, as deserving of, quote unquote, nice things, of the necessities. You know, so, no, a lot of these programs really intentionally keep us in poverty because they see us as less than. They see us as second-class citizens. And that's the way that disabled people have always been treated in this country from um, those who were enslaved and how disabled enslaved people were treated to the institutionalization of disabled people that happened in the 20th century and even to present day where many of our students are still fighting to be included in the classroom, even with the ADA being, and that's the Americans with Disabilities Act, being 31 years old. So none of these programs really see disabled people as people. And that is why they're so outdated, the failure to keep them updated, you know, when it comes to our access with inflation to just the modern times that have always been, you know, second place, you know, when it comes to these programs. So it's not surprising when you actually, you know, pause and really look at how society view disabled people. It makes sense, actually. Well, I'd like to I'd, I'd like to throw something in real quick. And Susan, it sounds like I just stepped on you. And if that's the case, I apologize. Okay. We still have to work that part out. I, I just I, I want to jump on something specific there, which is, do you think that, Melissa, there's a just a growing accessibility to the workforce that maybe like is is there a possibility that that one of the changes that we're seeing is just the fact that it's more possible for a disabled person to join the workforce now with remote work and those kinds of things. And that's why this is starting to come to, you know, sort of like a confusing place in the discussion. Well, I think that one thing we have to realize is that for many disabled people, if you're on SSI, there's going to be connection to your health care, which is most likely to be Medicaid. And other, um, so it could be Medicare, it depends on um, how you're uh, situation is set up. But regardless, these two are usually connected. And if you do away with one, it impacts the other. And one of the scarier um, predicaments that a disabled person can be in is I can lose my social security, but I can also lose my health care. And if I lose my health care, then that too is a lifeline that I depend on, which means that I may not have the assistance needed to take care of myself. Some disabled folks require personal care assistance to come into the home, you know, so that they can be in the house and not be in the institution and be a part of the community and to be able to work and so forth. So I think that, and I know personally, the major benefits of remote virtual work, but I also am conscious of the fact that many of us still have to choose whether or not we want to have access to healthcare and be able to work because sometimes 
private insurance does not pay for the extensive assistance that we may need that Medicaid, Medicare and other state federal programs do. So I think we have to understand that gap there that disabled people, even with these more robust opportunities to be either freelance or in seven poor like myself or to work for an employer, you know, at home, there's still this tug of how am I going to truly take care of myself if my whole benefits are removed so that I can gain employment. And also we have to think about think about the fact that many of the jobs that existed before the pandemic could be done, could have been done virtually. Many of us going to schools, whether it's K through 12 or higher ed, could have been done virtually. And that's some of the bitter taste that many disabled people have shared over the course of the now going on two years of the pandemic is that we've seen this push for virtual remote that was denied to so many of us for years. And now that we see that it can be done, but that resistance was ableist, that resistance with people not wanting to have the ability to micromanage and to have people in the office when none of that was truly needed. And now that we're seeing, even though we're still in the middle of a pandemic, the pulling back from virtual and remote, even when we see that it can be done from many industries and it not only benefits disabled people, but also non-disabled folks. We've seen the resistance to going back in the office. So I think that many many times disabled people, you know, are the ones who ring the alarm for many issues before everyone else pays attention. And when it comes to working remote or virtual, that was one of the alarms that we were ringing because we saw the benefits. We saw the benefits in the way that we're able to engage with each other, to really bring up causes that matter to us, to be able to create our own businesses, or to just really, you know, be more in tune with society in ways that's more comfortable with us without having to leave our home. It so, changed think, once the corporate managers had the yeah. had it happen to them. Susan, yeah. what what were you going to say? I was just going to say I was going back to the the two thousand dollars a month, and you know that hasn't been updated in decades. Yeah. I mean that is thirty plus years old. Um, but also one of the things that, I, and I had not realized that before I did the research on this topic, but so you don't hear about bringing these, these benefits up to modern times, but how often do we hear that social security cuts are on the table right. and Congress is looking for money to fund something else. Social security is almost always one of those things that's first on the chopping block. So, which really doesn't make sense to me. And I have not been able to wrap my head around the fact that the government recognizes that you are disabled and that for whatever reason, you don't have the ability to work um, the same job that other people can, but yet they keep you in poverty. So I, I don't, I know that that's a function of our government, but that is just not something I can get my brain to wrap around. Yeah. And I think that for some of the people who are on social security, some of them can work, some of them cannot work. But the mm -hmm. whole premise is that and the program that you cannot quote unquote afford right. to obtain work or make your own money. So you need this lifeline. But, you know, as I said earlier, many of us, 
like myself included, desired to work, but many of us may not have the opportunity to successfully get off the roll and still have access to health care. Because I know mm-hmm. many people who desire to work, but they need that health care. And because they need that health care, because those two entities are connected, they're stuck. And many mm-hmm. people are stuck in this predicament. So, so, so that's... Let, let, let me, so that's let me try to make some sort of usefulness out of this and just say, Jason, you know, I'd, I'd like to bring this home with you and say, uh, if I'm correct, this is one of the most popular campaigns that's been on the bot uh, in some time. Can you kind of give us some context about how popular the petition's been? The uh, the one that uh, Matthew put up originally, I uh, I heard Mel say earlier, is about 73,000 signers, but can you give us a sense of how popular that is in context? Um, I think it's about uh, the second largest in 2021. Um, we have another one, which uh, hopefully we can get to soon, um, which discusses the uh, the Line 3 pipeline going through Indigenous lands in um, um, the northern U.S. Um, and I just want to make the point that um, we in 2020, we had a couple of very large petitions um, organized by, again, and to remind folks listening and watching, um, these petitions and campaigns are all organized by members, not not us. Um, these are just users like you who have created these things. They've put them out there, and um, for whatever reason, they've been able to you know bring in you know huge movements from these things. Whether sharing them on social, doing Instagram live videos, TikToks, and they just put that code into what they say, um, which is really easy. People can communicate verbally what these codes are, and that brings folks in. Um, What's, what's unfortunate, and um, it's important for people to realize, the USPS issue that got so big last year, uh, you know, hitting, I think, 1.6 or 1.7 million, it was something that affected uh, almost everyone. So everyone kind of came in to participate, or, you know, not everyone, but a great number of people got in, and they're like, this affects me, I'm going to jump in. Um, obviously, what we've talked about here on this show is that... Um, you know, the disabled community is, is, is an easily forgotten one, an easily marginalized one. And it can't be just them that are lobbying and coming together and organizing and driving pressure to Washington. The rest of us have to jump in and help these folks. Um, you know, we have to amplify their voices because uh, there just aren't enough of them. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's great to see that we've had so many signers. But um, on the other hand, it's disappointing because, um, we need way more. We need folks, um, you know, contacting Congress and telling their representatives that, hey, this is something that's important to me, and I want you to pay attention to it. Um, and if we go from 75,000 to 750,000, you might see it. Um, with the USPS petition back in, in um, 2020, it was enough to have Nancy Pelosi call members of Congress back because there was such a massive groundswell once people realized that DeJoy was sort of sabotaging the post office right ahead of, uh, you know, a major quadrennial election, um, which was going to, you know, require uh, a lot of voting by mail. So, um, you know, to to folks listening, again, um, you know, take a couple of minutes, you know, sign it, tell your friends, um, and just have conversations with people and educate them about how there's communities of people that, that need, that needs, they need the rest of us to, to take action and do something um, because th- it's not enough for them to, to take action on their own. And this is not hard. We've now come to a point where it is literally sending a text to the resist bot uh, mechanism 
and you can sign that petition. That's all it takes. It's 50409. You can literally, if you're watching the live stream right now, you can see it in the background. It says text resist to 50409. The mechanism is super simple. Uh, the SSI now keyword will give you that uh, uh, demolished disabled poverty petition that you can sign. We would love to see that number go up. Velissa Thompson, thank you so much for this detailed explanation of sort of what the burdens are. Uh, is there anything else? Did I plug you correctly? Like I gave you the ramp your voice and the, and the Twitter plug. Is there anything else we would need to know? <laughs> no, you did. And just realize that every social and political issue has a disabled lens. So is there any issue that is deep to your heart? Find a disabled angle in there because I'm certain it's there. I appreciate you coming on and hopefully at some point we'll have you back. Thank you. I would love to be back. Thanks for joining us. All right, panel. This is uh, this is something where we've just got to get people to get out and and actually, you know, sign the petition. Um, you know, I'm I'm hoping that uh, we can get that done. If uh, if I'm looking at the clock, I think it's probably about time for us to really quickly focus on how organizers would take their cause to the bot. Uh, Jason, I'm going to focus in on you for this. Um, how how does a campaign form? Like if I were an organizer like Velissa and I wanted to start getting some critical mass around an issue, how would I do that? So, um, and I'll put the I'll put the article in the show notes um, in, in the podcast for people uh, you know for people to listen there. Um, there's a very detailed guide on the website now. Um, if you go to resist.bot, that's just the website. It's just resist.bot. Um, if you click on guide in the top right corner, um, there's all the keywords, um, that individual users can use. A lot of them people don't know. Um, the resist keyword is basically just like going to the homepage of our bot, but there's a lot of other keywords. You don't have to text resist first. You can just text one of them. Um, that's everything the bot can do. Um, on the top, there's a link to an organizer guide, which really explains in detail all the things that the bot can do. Um, I think to, to up-level, what's important to understand is when we launched this thing in, in uh, 2017, it was really sort of a, um, it was a one-to-one -one experience. People could use it to text themselves. Uh, um, rather, you know, it's just me talking to the government and that's kind of all I can do. So in order for these popular movements to build up, it was actually, it was actually pretty hard. Um, you know, people would just have to share this keyword, tell everyone to write Congress about this thing. And there was a lot of friction. Um, a lot of potential energy was lost. And the transformation we've made over the last two years is to introduce this concept of allowing people to organize on the platform. So instead of just this being a one-to-one -one thing, um, now folks who are a little bit more kind of, um, you know, civically minded can create really easy keyword campaigns that they're kind of less civically minded folks. All they have to do is kind of text one thing. They don't have to figure out what to write. They don't really have to do much of anything. They just follow the prompts and they can, and they can join these campaigns. Um, and that's how we were able to generate so much pressure, um, you know, about the postal service issue. But um, the, yeah, the big difference is that you can, but anyone can create one of these campaigns. You just go to the bot, you write a letter as normal. And then after you kind of finish, you're prompted to either, you're prompted to kind of make that letter open rather than private. So you can, you know, we've had open letters for a long time that are just published to Twitter. 
Once you say yes, I'm okay sharing this, um, a second option will come in after that saying, hey, would you like to allow other people to sign it? And if you say yes to that, you're, you're just walk through the kind of instructions as to how to uh, set up as a petition campaign. And after that, you're kind of off to the races. And this can, this thing can get as big as you want. Um, you know, people, there's, there's examples in the organizer guide of a um, couple of, I think they were college kids um, right around the time um, that George Floyd was, was kind of at its peak in terms of media attention. They focused in on a state issue. Um, I think it was a, it was a police transparency law in New York state, um, either qualified immunity or related to it. And they went all in on that one state law. Um, and these are, these are kids. So they're good with social media. They created, um, they got influencers to create videos. They got their code all over the place. They were able to drive, um, a hundred, 150,000, um, signatures on their petition, which meant, um, you know, 450 or 500,000 deliveries since everything goes to two state legislators and a governor. And they were able to get that law changed in a couple of days. Um, so the tools are there and the direction we're going with ResistBot is instead of just kind of putting this tool out there that anyone can just generally write their officials, where we're going next is we want to allow anyone who wants to take it a step further to create these large movements that can change public policy. Um, today it's, um, you know, delivering lots of letters to kind of city, state or federal government. We also have a vote drive feature if you want to turn out votes for a particular candidate. Um, in the future, we're going to build things where you can drive people to just show up at, at your you know, local congressman's office. Um, but the idea is we want to build kind of easy and very inexpensive tools that an organizer can pick up, do from their phone, create one of these movements quickly. And whether that's you know, driving 10 people to a council meeting or driving 100,000 letters to Washington, we want to make that really easy and, uh, and very accessible uh, to anyone who wants to do them. So what I'm hearing is there are nearly 10 million users on the platform. The guides are essentially built in for you to build these campaigns uh, in multiple different ways. You've really got to just focus on the getting your keyword out. You've got to basically make it so that, you know, you've got this singular purpose where you're putting that that keyword and that that campaign into enough people's hands. But uh, the the heavy lifting part is done. It's really just about now sort of getting that same message out to as many people as possible. Uh, Jason, I appreciate that. I'm going to bring Susan back in real quick. Susan, um, can you talk a little bit about some useful keywords that people that aren't organizers, but are instead looking to get involved as an individual might find to be useful? Sure. Um, I actually have one that is my favorite and um, I'm not sure it gets a, a lot of attention, but it's called Nearby. And one of the things that I love about ResistBot is you can advocate for those issues that are important to you. You can advocate for those issues that are important across the country, but you can also advocate for those issues that are important to your neighbors, your literal neighbors, the people live in the same communities with you. And you do that by sending the keyword nearby. And so that when you do that, you get some images back of letters that were written by people that live in your community that are living in the same environment that you are. And that is one of my favorite keywords is really being able to pick up that issue that the person who lives down the street 
finds important that I didn't know about, or it was, it just wasn't on my radar. And so that's one of my favorites. I like trending as well. I like knowing sort of like which things are the hotter ones, but I I like the fact that you're, and you've said nearby to me a few times, uh, focusing again on something that we, it's a word we use even on the show. Like it's what your neighbors are interested in. It's like, you know, geographically speaking, like it's likely that you are going to have an awareness of, you know, what's being discussed in those petitions. All right, Melanie Dion, I'm going to bring you up. You're the voice of our audience and we appreciate having you here. I know, uh, you know, you keep an eye on what's going on out there in the world. What is your takeaway, um, with, the disability and and disabled poverty comments. Give me an idea now that you've had a chance to browse through everything everyone said. Um, what what do you think we're learning? What do you think that the the current atmosphere is out there in the uh, audience? I think people are are frustrated um, because there's a there's a confusion. I, um, we said earlier how we all know somebody who has gone through this. We all have either our own personal story because of an older relative or a relative with disability or our own story where we've had to deal with the frustrations of dealing with um, obtaining social services. And it goes back to what Jason said earlier. It can't just be on the people of the disabled community. It has to be all of us saying that as a society, we are not this is not the society we want to be. This is not the type of thing we have to accept. There's no place for this. And so I think the the voice, at least in our comments for certain, has has been one of either it's ranged from disbelief, um, confusion, and understanding why this is so antiquated when the answer is really simple. You know, the people that there are a lot of people who just think it's okay to not care to passively not care, not even actively not care, just leave it as it is because we've done enough. So I think people are more inclined to um, to weigh in and make their voice heard in, in taking this to the next step so that we can make these changes because I agree it does need to be in the Build Back Better Act. We cannot build better when we've left um, our disabled neighbors in the 50s. But if it doesn't make it in there, we have to keep pushing. If we have to, if we have to keep trying, you know, the point about, and I, I know we keep circling back to it, but uh, disability, disabilities are prevalent, but they will never be a, not prevalent, but they are common. Uh, you have someone in your life that is uh, experiencing this, but they will never be the majority. So therefore, like the majority has to take interest in something that they don't personally experience. So uh, I'm asking the audience to to be that person and to and make sure that the people that are in your orbit are aware of what we talked about today. Uh, very, very quickly, some housekeeping at the end. Uh, next week, speaking of all the flurry of activity that's going to be happening in the uh Washington, D.C. scene. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a, a catch up and clean up episode where we're going to be talking about uh, reconciliation, infrastructure, debt ceiling, everything that's going on. It's just a just a flurry of activity out there. And we're going to do what we can to uh, help people understand those discussions. Uh, we have a very special panelist next week. Uh, we are still following Haitian migrants and uh, the rest of the uh, immigration and asylum conversation, which we will begin one week after. So that's two weeks from today. And uh, 
we're continuing to try to develop this show to be what you need it to be. So we would love to hear again in these comments on social media, in that uh, subreddit that we discussed earlier, tell us what you want us to cover. Tell us what you like and don't like about what you're seeing and hearing uh, before we close out uh, parting shots, plugs. I don't know if you're making an appearance on the stage at uh, the local improv. Uh, Susan, where are you going to be this week? What do you want people looking at? Um, this uh, October is breast cancer awareness month. And, um, so that's something that I've been looking at at the past couple days. And it is a cancer that if you are diagnosed early, it is 98% curable. I use the word curable. Um, if you've never done a breast exam yourself, if you don't know where to go and get a clinical exam, we've got an article on our website under the news tab. It's called Save the Women um, because it is about the women, not the tatas or the boobies, or it's about the women because those can be replaced. So Save the Women, we've got some links in there to schedule an appointment, a video to show you how to do a breast exam. And, um, you know, if we can get some women to check and maybe head something terrible off at the pass. Jason Patorti, what are you, uh, what are you doing this week? What are you hoping people will do? What are we plugging? Going to be a busy week. Um, we've seen a flurry of activity on the bot this past week. I don't expect that to stop. Um, given how things are coming to a head in DC, um, with the, uh, the reconciliation bill, the infrastructure bill, um, I'll take this this chance to call out a couple things. Um, if you go to resist.bot slash petitions, or you can just go to resist.bot and click on it. Um, kind of top two right now are, um, again, firing to joy. Um, he came out with a statement saying that uh, he, he's going to make, you know, certain types of mail deliberately slower, um, which is super. Um, but at least it will so be more got, expensive, I hear. At least it'll be yes. more expensive to go slower. It will be more expensive and slower. So we got a few dueling petitions on the top of the page. Um, the Texas um, abortion rights issue is still um, is still going on. It's still kind of working its way through courts and um, probably eventually end up in the Supreme Court. The DOJ is going to try and uh, protect women's rights in Texas. So we have a few things popping up there uh, related to the Hyde Amendment um, and abortion rights. Um, the other kind of larger point I'll make, um, there's, you know, there's kind of marginalized communities all, all over the place that are, you know, fighting for very fundamental rights um, that a lot of us take for granted. The kind of bigger uh, meta point that I, I want to make uh, for folks listening, um, it, it really is hilarious how many people sort of came up to me or, you know, text, social media, whatever. And it's like, oh, like, so what are we going to be resisting now that Biden won? And uh, I, this even was after January 6th. I'm just like, are you are you kidding me right now? Do not start um, something that's going to be a whole nother hour, Jason. You're getting my blood <laughs> up already. No, no, I'll, I'll wrap it up. <laughs> folks, folks need, we need a level of engagement um, like we saw in 2017. We had a big groundswell of people. They, they kind of recognized the danger that was there. Um, that danger isn't going away. In fact, it's a lot more organized now than it was in 2017. And they've sort of, you know, in 2017, um, they were kind of fumbling around the levers of power. Um, I think we had, you know, we were lucky and had some institutions held. Um, but um, we may not be so lucky in 2024. So 
Um, folks need to talk to their friends, get engaged, participate. Um, ResistBot is built so you can engage year round in a really easy way. Um, but you just, you got to pay attention and, um, and kind of, if you have democratic reps, um, push them to stiffen their spines and stand strong because if, if kind of we don't pass election reforms and things like that, it's going to be the Democrats' fault because they just didn't push hard enough. And we need them at this point to stiffen their spine. The, the Republicans are generally far gone. They've kind of bought into this project um, of trying to, uh, you know, short circuit our democracy into, into something else where they have kind of permanent control. Um, you've got to push on the folks that still, you know, actually believe in democracy. So I'll leave it there on a, on a high note. Melanie? You've got to give me something that I don't get angry about, like Jason's thing there, because that just wound me up. And like I said, we're, we're about to go into hour two of ResistBot Live based on him putting a ball on a tee and just daring me to hit it. Melanie, give me something nice. Well, the Saints are back at the Superdome. And, um, Look at you. And um, our, one of my good friends, I want to um, lend my, my uh, platform to my friends at Tailgate Together. Um, if you search hashtag Tailgate Together, you will see the amazing work that they're doing. And today being our official home opener, um, they had a tailgate today under the Pontchartrain Expressway at Aretha Castle Haley and Mission on, on game day Sundays. They are out there doing the good work, um, feeding our unhoused population in New Orleans. They're also doing a lot of amazing work with um, Hurricane Ida relief, whatever hurricane is happening, because I mean, it's it's the Gulf South, so there's always a hurricane. So they're doing great work to make sure in terms of mutual aid in, in those disasters and also consistent work in helping our unhoused communities. One of my favorite things about them is um, that the guy who runs it, who does not want me to mention his name, so I won't, but he's amazing. Um, he He's very adamant about there being no pictures and things like that because he wants to make sure that there are there is dignity in in servicing these people because they are people so wherever you are look up hashtag tailgate together and you will see the options of helping whether it's monetary aid there's also a um a wish list for the things that they always need to to provide supplies and things like that. So that is that is something that can that is less, you know, not not happy that there are unhoused people. Obviously, that is a huge issue, but that there are people who are doing this, just regular folks getting together and helping our neighbors with dignity. That's something that gives you just like a bit of a bright spot. I'm not discounting anything that Jason said. Uh, obviously, everything he said is entirely accurate, but I do appreciate the palate cleanser there of, you know, feeling a little bit less, I don't know, blood pressure uh, accumulation here at the tail end of the show. Thank you all for your contributions this week. We will be back next week, 1 p.m. Eastern time, Resist Bot Live every Sunday. If you miss the live stream, you can always pick us up on the channels where the live stream comes out, which is Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube. Uh, and obviously there's a podcast uh, that you can pick up wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all. I appreciate your contributions. Have a great week, everybody. ResistBot and ResistBot Live are nonprofit efforts made possible by our volunteers and charitable donors. Join us by visiting resist.bot 
and follow us on every major social platform using the name ResistBot. Contributors appearing on ResistBot Live include Susan Stutz, Athena Foulet, Melanie Dion, Dr. Joseph Kuhill, Christine Liu, and me, Scott McTaggart. Every installment of ResistBot Live begins as a live stream at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sundays on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, and Twitter. If you miss the live stream, video replays are available at those same destinations. Audio replays are available wherever you get your podcasts. The music at the beginning and end of the show is provided by the artist, Punch Deck. The opening track is called The Sound Consumes. This track is called Persistence. Both tracks are available for purchase and download at punchdeck.bandcamp.com.